Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. This is the show that takes a deeper look at the stories that are making the news and takes a wider view on Irish and international business and politics. I'm Andy Johnston and I'll be keeping you company for the next hour. Today we're diving into the topic of commercial property investment in Ireland and why it seems to be lagging behind. Joining us is Sean Keyes of The Currency who'll give us some insight into the current situation. Later in the show, the cost and benefit of St Bridget's Day with the first bank holiday of the year happening this week. We ask at what cost to the Exchequer and the workforce. And to wrap up today's show, we'll be discussing the EU's recent announcement of a comprehensive plan to support new investment in green energy. With the US making a push to attract green investment, we'll see how this plan could potentially enhance investment in green energy here in Ireland. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, in Ireland, we want it both ways. On the one hand, we want a country to be affordable. We want low rents. and We want abundant property investment that gives rise to them. On the other hand, we're fussy about where property investment must come from. So says Sean Keyes from his latest piece in The Currency. Sean, you're very welcome to Taking Stock today. Thanks for having me. Now, you've written a very interesting article, Sean. Uh, it talks all about the investment landscape, talks about a potential in commercial property in terms of that sector going down. So just maybe tease out that piece first for us uh, and that notion of where Ireland sees its investment coming from, what we don't want. OK, well, well it came from uh, looking at the headlines and seeing commercial property is sort of taking a bit of a tumble. And it just reminded me of a bigger idea, which is like where, who funds property and development in Ireland? And that's the, the question of who funds property and development in Ireland is, has changed a lot in the last 10 years. And it's just, so the basic idea is that it used to be that we sort of, we did it all ourselves. Uh, it used to be that you'd have a, a small private developers, usually there were builders obviously back in the Celtic Tiger days who did the development. They, and then they were funded by Irish banks. And after the financial crisis, for a whole bunch of reasons, some of them regulatory, all sorts of stuff, we moved away from that model. And we sort of set up a model with IRFs and REITs and international investors. And international investors took over as the main funders of property development in Ireland. And that's sort of the way it's happening, mm. the, the way it has been happening. But people aren't very happy about that you know um there's uh a, there's obviously you know this idea of vulture funds has really kind of grabbed a hold of the irish kind of consciousness and then cuckoo funds are the successor to it and there's an idea out there that foreign investors are in some way bad mm. and we should not want them in our country and that's the work that the investment should happen in a different way and i'm making the case that you know actually foreign investment in, in property is good and w- one example is when commercial property takes a tumble um irish irish investors aren't the ones who are on the hook for it yeah like even the terminology and the names that that they're often given vulture funds and cuckoo funds it's very you know it's very negative and and what's the gripe Sean the gripe is that we're giving away our country assets to foreigners on the cheap is that is that essentially the charge Oh, I, I'm putting myself in the shoes of, of the opponents of this. Uh, but mm. I, I guess, look, it's part of it is 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 the kind of cultural feeling of, you know, this is our land, it's our country. 
and we should own the land. It's sort of like the definition of a country is the land underneath it. And if you don't own the land, all of it, then you're not really a country or something like that. Yeah. And this is obviously, this is me putting myself in the shoes of other people. People might say I'm being unfair to their position, but I don't know, I'm doing my best here. That's how I think that they, people think about it. And maybe people feel that, um, you know, foreign investors are sort of rapacious and um, profit hungry and that they will you know once profits aren't there that they will move on to the next thing or something like that mm. anyway so that so yeah so that's 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 the view i think yeah and and you know if if our funding isn't going to come from foreign investors what's the alternative where else could ireland get funding for for building at scale Okay, so there's a few options. So option one, as we as is is the banks. They used to do it, but they can't do it anymore. They're not allowed. They're a regulator. The ECB basically won't let them do it because it's too risky. So they're off the table. Um, you could have you could have in theory you could have uh, specialized investors that aren't foreign, like just Irish investors funding it. Um, but there's a couple of problems with it. One is that if you look at that we're not very enthusiastic about that in, in practice. If you look at Irish pension assets, only something like 2.1% I found were held in, in property investment funds uh, and all the rest were in stocks and bonds and things. Whereas, again, against the global average of, of pensions that would have something like 8.9% in property investment funds. So in terms of our pension assets, we're not really using them to fund it. And Another and, and what, point. Sorry, Sean, why is that, Sean? Why is it is it not a good punt for for Irish investors? I honestly that that was something I, I I found in my reporting earlier this week. I was digging through the statistics in the central bank, and it, I raised an eyebrow when I saw it, and I made a note <laughs> to look into it. <laughs> well, we come back to, to find that out another day. And when I when I intend to come back and, have, and get a good answer to it, um, but yeah, as it stands, that's where we are. So so that's that's one thing. We're, okay. we're not doing it much in practice. Um, the other thing is that you know property development. It's kind of it's like all these things in the world. It's getting it's, it's getting more and more specialized. And it used to be that you know a generalist investor could would invest in all sorts of things. You know, in property, in debt, and in companies, and this and that. And the way the world has gone, you have very large, very international, very specialized investors who specialize in some narrow thing, mm. and they do and they do that. And they fund that all over the world. So that's the other point that it's it's a, it's a question of specialism, and that's why our Irish investors maybe aren't the best to do it because they're not going to be that specialised. Um, the other options, apart from say banks, Irish investors, are the state. Mm-hmm. Just, just the state could just do it all, or the state could take the lead in certain so- socially important ones at least. Um, and obviously, there's there's a big debate over that, and there's certain strong calls for the state to take a more active role, um, like. That's fine as it goes, but I, I think the point is that there's the, the we saw these there's a there's in front of the Irish Times today there was a, a report had leaked showing that the Irish the, that the official housing targets are off by like almost fifty percent they're almost fifty percent smaller than they need to be basically the, the the need for investment in housing is much greater than even we even what we thought mm. there's just a, a bottomless demand for investment in this country because of the nature of how fast the population is growing, how many jobs are being created, and the, and obviously the shortfall in the past. So there's just this huge, huge hole or demand, huge demand for investment. If you want the state to do to just take the lead and do it all, you end up gobbling up a huge slice of the national budget so mm. then it's like a question of you know what you deep do you deprioritize something else? Do you increase taxes? 
pretty very significantly you know it's the, the spending would be something in the order of roughly 10 15 percent of the national budget so that's what you'd be looking at so yeah the state could do it but it would be a big shock to, the, to our tax and spending system. Yeah, and you'd have to question if the international investment is there, is this a good use of taxpayers' money and do we even have the expertise that we need to de- to you know, to, to actually deliver these really uh, complex and very expensive uh, housing and commercial offering developments when there's investors maybe out there who have all that knowledge and wealth of knowledge to do it. Um, what about... Um, the, the way things are kind of turning at the moment in, in relation to uh, international investors, because now they're kind of getting criticised for not doing enough, that they're pausing work on projects and, and why aren't they doing more? Are you getting a sense of that? Well, yeah, I mean, you just you just you, know, you take the temperature in social media and that's just that's the, the line that you hear quite a lot now. And I was uh, I was on a podcast with someone and they were making that same point that, you know, it's it's and it's, it's a legitimate point, actually, um, that you don't you really don't want the investment in important projects to be really volatile like you'd like it to be really smooth and what we have is this sort of volatile international macro background where you know interest rates are going up and that sort of calls into question marginal projects and like that's the situation you know that like interest rates have gone up for 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 property investors that's bad because it's it means like the, the, the property investors do well when interest rates are really low they can take a bit of extra risk and it's worth it for them but when interest rates go up they're they're they can they don't need to take risks they can just make money easily by you know investing in, in safer stuff so yeah like it's 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 you, you can see look, looking at it on paper let's say you'd be worried and mm. you'd be waiting for it to translate into real life and now you're looking around and it is starting to translate into real life there are projects big projects that are being paused um and so we just i guess from our, from a selfish Irish point of view, I guess we just have to hope that it doesn't become a huge trend, that it resolves itself, um, and that that we can we can get that the, the flow of investment doesn't grind to a halt. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm speaking to Sean Keyes of The Currency about foreign investors in the commercial property landscape. Just standing back from that commercial investment part for a moment, Sean, and looking at the wider sentiment as it relates to Ireland at the moment, we, we've we got a stable taxation regime, corporation tax issue hopefully has been settled and sorted now. Politically, uh, it's stable as it can be. Um, but what is the investor attitude to Ireland in, in, a, in a landscape where inflation isn't really sorted yet, interest rates are still going up? Is there is there a positive, you know, anything anything positive on the horizon from from that investor landscape perspective? Well, I, I mean, I think you, I would just describe like the situation as it, as it stands, sort of generally with Ireland related to, the, to Europe. I don't think that has changed very much mm. because the thing the thing that has changed is this like you know global interest rate environment that's affecting all of Europe, all of the world in a similarish way. But if you're to describe describe investor sentiment towards Ireland relative to other places like obviously so they have these there's like a, a, a core Europe which is sort of you know you know like Holland and Germany and and, and sort of northern Italy and and, and France mm. those places are considered to be le- the least risky the most stable and so people are willing to invest at a kind of a lower yield in those places 
And then there's sort of, we're not in that tier. We're considered to be more risky because, you know, things go wrong. Basically, we're in, in Ireland, things are more likely to go wrong in Ireland than they are in Amsterdam. There's, you know, maybe maybe the, the, the political system, the winds might change, the rules might change, or the Irish economy might, might be considered to be more volatile. For anyway, for all these reasons, the Irish economy is considered to be a bit more risky than those core markets. So it's in that sort of, that next tier out. But I think the, over the last five, 10 years, the trend had been that uh, like investors were getting more and more confident in Ireland, and our investors had been seeing Ireland as becoming closer and closer to this like you know core Europe investable kind of model. Mm. And I was talking to somebody um, in IBEC last week about um, the the peace dividend and what that had brought to Ireland. And actually, sometimes we forget the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement is coming up this year. Um, and actually, that has actually contributed a lot to the stability of, of Ireland and how we're viewed as a landscape, the all-Ireland economy. Um, have you kind of seen this over the years, kind of where people kind of factor in that the peace dividend here? Um, in the south, um, probably not. To be honest, I haven't noticed that, but I, I'm sure it's definitely the case in the north. I mean, um, house prices in places like I, I know Derry is the I know well, um, and house prices have grown there quite a lot from like quite a quite a low base. Um, I guess obviously because of that that piece dividend. Um, but yeah, I mean the real I mean the real dividend is sort of in this con- in this island is yet to come if we were to really fully integrate our an all Ireland, all Ireland economy and you know that would be transformative for the south if it were ever to happen but you know obviously that's kind of pie in the sky stuff well well there's a road to go on that for sure and we'll watch the protocol uh, developments with interest uh, but Sean thank you very much for taking the time to join with us today and take us through that that was Sean Keyes of the currency thanks very much you're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk I'm Mandy Johnston and next up today can we afford an extra bank holiday You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, Monday will be the first St. Bridget's Day official public holiday. Um, That's all very well and good for the majority of us who are really looking forward to putting our feet up after a gruelling January. But what's the cost of an extra day off and our business unduly impacted by it? We're joined now by Elizabeth Bowen, who is Acting Director of the Small Firms Association. Elizabeth, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thank you very much. Now, first... Kick us off. What's the difference between a bank holiday and a public holiday? So um, a bank holiday would be days when traditionally financial institutions were closed. So that would be Christmas Eve and Good Friday. We know that the banks are closed. However, what we have in Ireland is we have public holidays. And what Friday or Monday, the 6th um, of February is going to be is our 10th public holiday. Okay, and we have 10 of them now. So where does that put us in an EU context? Do we have more than them, less than the EU average? How does that figure? Yes, um, this new 10th holiday is going to bring us up into that EU standard. And I suppose, firstly, the Small Small Firms Association, we understand what motivated, you know, the introduction of this 10th holiday. And that very much was driven out of COVID and our want to have better, you know, employee well-being. And I suppose it's also worth acknowledging that this is going to be our first public holiday named after a woman. Oh, that is significant. And we've seen a lot of celebrations of that, which is very welcome. So broadly speaking, the Small Firms Association, do you as a representative group welcome this? 
You know, like I said, we understand the motivation and why it has been uh, introduced. However, there is a cost with public holidays, and I think that's something that we really need to understand. So for small firms, so for the Small Firms Association, our employ- our members would be the smallest employers, so they have less than 50. There's a real cost burden for those. And the reason why it is a cost burden is that if you think about it, there's a payroll cost, there's a loss of revenue, and obviously there's additional administration costs. Hmm. So that burden burden would be are you going to stay open who are you go- if you are staying open who are you putting on the roster who you're taking off the roster you know additional planning around that and most importantly you need to be updating contracts and staff policies to add this 10th holiday uh, into those yeah and let's just talk about the cost implications first of all um so uh replying to a parliamentary question from Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly, the cost of the Exchequer, the new bank holiday will yield. Leo Varadkar said that an additional public holiday may impact in terms of cost of the Exchequer broadly in lower tax receipts due to the associated reduction in economic activity. And you're saying that that is the case, like some businesses then will not open because of that. And so um, are there, is it split between different industries? Is there one industry that's more impacted by this? Or what are the types of industries that can't actually deal with this the, in, in another public holiday well? Yeah, well, actually, if you your listeners will remember that last year we got an extra public holiday as well for COVID. And research actually around that found that that extra day off would be the equivalent of 0.4% of payroll as well as a loss of revenue. And like you said, some businesses, big, large businesses, they're really going to be able to take on that cost because they're profitable. But we have to be conscious of small firms. And when we talk and remember about the last two years, our small firms in retail and in food services, in business districts, and in town centres, they've really struggled to get footfall back. So for those businesses, you know, closing on Monday, a decision to close on Monday is going to be a loss of revenue for them over a very, which has, has been a very difficult trading time. And what about the businesses who don't close, don't want to close and shouldn't close? Because like, let's face it, we're all wandering around on Monday with <laughs> looking for things to do. So a lot of that is about retail. A lot of it is about, you know, tourism events and some of it is about coffee shops and restaurants and stuff. So if you don't get afforded the public holiday by your employer, what do you get instead? Yes, well, obviously there is legislation around all of our public holidays and annual leave. And actually, it's funny that public holidays and the administration of annual leave is probably the number one query that the Small Firm Association HR hotline gets. Um, And that's because, like I said, it's a lot of planning and a lot of administration burden goes around it. So, you know, those considerations that a small firm has to think about, you know, and what the legislation means, it's very much looking at the decisions about, you know, are you going to close? Are you going to roster? Um, and will you roster off? And from an employee, it doesn't mean that you're actually entitled to get that day off. Yes, you may get that day off or you actually may have to work and then you get a day off within that month or you might actually end up having to work that day and you might end up getting double time. So that's, you know, how the law works and it's very, very clear and I suppose that's why this is the number one issue for small uh, firms ringing the SFA for our members because it's the administration so you have to take all of that in consideration and then you have to take in the consideration of our part-time workers and you also need to discuss this with our flexible uh, workers so it's a lot of time a lot of burden and a lot of planning going into public holidays and into the administration of annual holidays. Mm, And one way or another it's costing small firms 
um, a lot more money and they could be very hard pressed, you know, to keep uh, staff on anyway. And one of the other things I wanted to look at was the data about um, the cost of this, because it seems to me that there is a distinct lack of available data from an Irish perspective. So I saw some figures that were used from the UK maybe to evaluate this. Do you expect that that will change now that we have 10 holidays? Is there some kind of element of government looking at what the actual cost to to small firms and business is? Yes, I think the Small Firms Association would really welcome uh, new data on the cost of public holidays, but across all of the new public, across all of the leaves that we're getting. So currently, you know, for a small firm, we're seeing a huge number of new costs coming in when it looks at employment law. So we're seeing statutory sick pay being brought in in January, increase in carers leave, in uh, parental leave, new breaks, uh, new changes around uh, probation and training. So we actually estimate um, in IBEC and through the Small Firms Association that actually those costs will be about 2.8% onto payroll across the whole economy. So that would be the additional uh, leave through the public holidays and all the new additional employment uh, costs. So, you know, it would be great to actually see before we see any more employment law being introduced, any more additional leave leave or um, days, public holidays, we'd like to see real the data about the cost of this. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary that it doesn't even exist uh, as we stand. But if you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Elizabeth Bowen, who's Acting Director of the Small Firms Association. We're talking about the cost of public holidays, of which there is now 10. Um, one of the other things, uh, I was talking to a colleague of mine about productivity in the workplace. Is there a sense that, um, or any evidence that there's an argument about bank holidays causing people to switch off a little bit earlier maybe than they would normally. So is that a is, is that a concern for employers? You know, I suppose there's always a concern about productivity, um, you know, and that's why it's very important to keep motivating your staff to have, you know, performance uh, reviews all throughout the year, you know, and have those processes put in place if you think that productivity um, is failing. And obviously, you know, when you're promoting people to new management, it's always a good idea, you know, to maybe do some training for a new manager so they can be better at like motivating and assessing productivity and then encouraging greater productivity amongst their um, employees. Mm. Now, not to end the note on a complete, we're, we're not complete party poopers here. Uh, so there has to be pluses of this. So we just got through a very long January. Um, this bank holiday is welcomed by a lot of people. What are the pluses for a business kind of taking that little time out every month for the next kind of 10 months as we're going to get those in a rolling public holiday um, calendar now. So what are the pluses that a holiday like this will bring? Well, I suppose the plus is, like you said uh, earlier, you know, hopefully it'll drive football into our towns, into our tourist attractions. So we'll see an uplift in those service uh, areas. Um, we'd also, I think, looking at employees, you know, we've really consciously thought about employee well-being and the need to take all of your annual leave, the need to, you know, to stop and, and take that break uh, during the day and obviously in the evening so you'll have that bounce on well-being and I think that's really important and you know that was one of the motivations for introducing this new bank a public holiday no, Don't call it a bank holiday um, Just finally then um, do you think that the 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 legacy of what we've learned about well-being in the workplace has maintained. Um, you know, you're obviously working with small firms on a day-to-day basis and they're struggling with lots of different things like the energy crisis and the cost of, of living crisis and all of that. But it seems to me, certainly in my working life, that 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 that, that care about the employee 
has maintained. Do you see that? Yes, well, very much. You know, like I said, small firms, um, members of the Small Firm Association have less than 50 employees. So, you know, and the majority of businesses in Ireland are five or 10 employees. So a business owner will very much have a very personal relationship with their employees. That's because it's small. It's a small group of people. Yeah. And the small firms are always known to be flexible. You know, they're always known to have remote working before everyone was remote working, those flexible hours. So I think that culture has always been in small firms um, and especially in family businesses and we have seen that continue but for growing businesses you know those businesses that are coming out of that 10 into 50 into 15 and into 50 very conscious that in a competitive uh, market and the very competitive and tight labour market that we have right now um, here in Ireland that they're looking at what policies they can do and also obviously adhering to all of the work-life balance legislation that we're going to see come in later in the year. Well, Elizabeth, that was a very interesting discussion on it and not one that I sort of thought about before. But to be honest with you, um, it it is something I suppose we need to think about from from the employer's perspective as well. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Elizabeth Bowen, who's Acting Director of the Small Firms Association. Elizabeth, enjoy your bank holiday weekend. Thank you very much. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston. After the break, can the EU take action and hit back against the US to compete for green investment? Find out all after the break. You're welcome back to Taking Stock here on News Talk. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, the race against climate change has got a lot of media attention in recent years and the fight to attract green investment is certainly on. This week, we heard of EU plans to hit back against the United States much touted Inflation Reduction Act and uh, they hope to keep green energy companies inside Europe. Those plans are first revealed by the Financial Times. So what could this mean for Europe and its member states? I'm delighted to be joined again now by Javier Espinosa, who's the EU correspondent for the Financial Times. Javier, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for your time. Now let's start with the US, Javier. Just take us back to their uh, idea to, to promote and attract green investment into the US. What were they proposing and how was that going to impact EU companies? Yes, I mean, let's, the bigger picture is that there is a need globally, not just in the US, but uh, elsewhere, to repurpose funding to so-called green uh, technology uh, against the backdrop that uh, we are concerned as a planet uh, of climate change and how this might deteriorate and might not be good for the sustainability of the Earth and where we live. So this is the bigger picture. Uh, and, and as a result, uh, the U.S. Uh, came up with this massive, very quickly approved a massive injection of 369 billion uh, dollars mm. in what is called uh, Inflation Reduction Act and, or or badly uh, abbreviated to mean IRA, which I know it doesn't translate well in, in Ireland. Yeah, a whole but, different but meaning over means, here. <laughs> but uh, essentially what it means is that it's encouraging companies based in the U.S. to invest in uh, hydrogen, invest in cutting-edge technologies and in, 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 in sectors that are going to actually decarbonize uh, the economy. As an unintended or intended, uh, it doesn't really matter consequence of this, uh, what it has done is that it has unleveled the playing field uh, globally, meaning that uh, if you are a European company and you're not based in the, U- in the U.S., you don't have any operations there, 
you're being disadvantaged. You're not taking advantage of these subsidies. As a result, what is happening now and what countries are very deeply worried about, and so is the European Commission, uh, the, the U.S. is literally calling up companies and saying, do you want to relocate here? Uh, and we'll give you very attractive uh, tax breaks. It really, with no exaggeration, has uh, created a lot of panic among very senior EU officials that I speak to uh, here in Brussels, and that has led to this new announcement of the EU's response Mm. to to the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, because what these huge energy companies, even the ones in transition, are looking for is attractive but stable uh, investment landscapes that they can, you know, move towards for sure, but also that there is something attractive but stable to keep them there. But the, the EU, Javier, have had a very ambitious Green Deal plan themselves. And before we get into what they're proposing on the state the state aid side, just um, give us uh, your view on, on how they were proposing to fund the green transition across the e- the European Union as a whole before this before this issue arrived. Like, How were they going to fund that big transition piece within EU member states? Yes, this, the green transition and the funding of the green transition has been one of the key uh, pillars of the current uh, European Commission, uh, some 800 billion euros in what is called the next generation uh, EU uh, were going to be dedicated to to that uh, form, uh, to that to that to help uh, that cause in the also in the form of tax credits for businesses. So in a way, is not that dissimilar to what the US is trying to do. Some uh, diplomats. In fact, that I was talking to today, we're saying, you know, you can see that, you know, the EU is now reacting to the U.S., but you can flip it the other way around and say, actually, it's the U.S. Mm. that is uh, reacting, reacting to the uh, EU, to, to the EU. But the problem is that in the last three years, you know, uh, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, who is the president of the European Commission, was only in power in her role uh, less than 100 days in office when COVID hit. Mm. Then came the Ukrainian war. Then came the energy crisis. So, uh, uh, you know, Brussels regulators and officials uh, talk about this sort of like semi-permanent state of uh, crisis. It seems to be that we're going from uh, putting out one fire after after another. So it is in this against this backdrop that uh, the EU came up with this uh, highly ambitious uh, so-called Green Deal. Mm, I think um, in your own paper, the economist Adam Tooze uh, coined the phrase polycrisis, and that certainly is uh, the landscape that Ursula von der Leyen has been trying to navigate. But um, you, you mentioned that the EU moved with speed uh, reacting to this US deal. It's not something you'd often credit the EU Commission with <laughs> moving with the speed at anything, but can you just talk us through what the EU's proposals were around state aids and what were they looking at this week in terms of, you know, competing with the US? Yes, they are moving at actually two different speeds. One is the immediate one because they realize that they have to do something. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act has kicked off 
uh, has started to be applied uh, from last month. So, you know, it's really a race against time They that the EU sort of like woke up to this uh, last summer. Uh, and so what they are, they have started looking to then is like, what can we do that we, we already have in an arsenal uh, to uh, help companies? Mm. One complaint from businesses, including Irish businesses, is that it takes a long time, longer than in the U.S., uh, to access uh, these funds. So one of the key uh, sort of actions that the EU is taking is to make it easier to to have simplified uh, procedures for businesses so that they can access uh, the funds quicker. Also, I mentioned earlier uh, in our conversation, this 800 billion euro fund, the president of the commission yesterday uh, talked about 250 billion or so from existing funds that are available right now to be invested today Mm. to be redeployed from you know, maybe uh, money that countries had uh, anticipated they were going to use to tackle the energy crisis. Energy crisis, energy prices are coming down, albeit slowly, but they are. Uh, COVID as well, the COVID funds are completely shot already. You know, there's not, no more money available to use for that cost. So what she's saying, let's use the money that we have today redeploy it, use it now, and make it faster for businesses to get to. So this is we talk about speed. This is uh, one uh, fast way that uh, the commission is trying to act. Some critics say it's just uh, uh, re- rehashing. It's almost like putting a lipstick on a pig. I think like there's not new money, mm. right? It's just really... Uh, it's just repackaging it's it tweaking up. The, yeah. Tweaking the edges, mm. right? And mm. make it seem like something bigger when it's actually not the case. Mm. Secondly, and this is more medium to long term, the commission has proposed a so-called sovereignty fund. So this would be money made available to countries, uh, you know, new money. And this is the problem. One thing that that the commission doesn't have a lot of these days is extra funding. Mm. And and so this has really uh, reignited a massive uh, fight of bickering among member states because uh, the smaller countries, including uh, Denmark or, or Spain, are often uh, they often look with jealousy at countries too specifically actually, and there's only two: uh, Germany and France, because of course any relaxation, any furthering increase of funds uh, would benefit the larger economy. And so they are worried Mm. that this will further undermine the core of what the European Union is supposed to be about, which is a single market where everybody benefits uh, equally and and not disproportionately. No, an age-old row about power and proportionality in the EU. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm joined by Javier Espinoza, who's the EU correspondent for the Financial Times. Javier, what specific industries are likely to benefit from these um, state aid rules that that are being introduced by the EU Commission? We are still in the early stages because the EU is debating, asking member states to come up uh, with uh, areas where they see, you know, that uh, help could come up 
but you know we you can think about you know anything that is not old industry so you can talk about and think about uh, uh, clean energy technologies anything that is not uh, co2 emitting uh, but it's still too early to say uh, which uh, of all this sort of short list of industries is going to to make it next week uh, February 8th and 9th the 27 member of the European Union are going to meet in in Brussels and they will be hashing out uh, you know figuring out which industries uh, will make it one idea is this idea of matching so essentially they would look at the list of the sectors that the inflation reduction act has selected and they will say okay every time and not only that but they talk about third world third countries so in, in every time that another country gives subsidies to that to a, a sector then they will match mm. uh, whatever that subsidy is happening uh, in the eu now they continue to talk about oh we're not in a subsidies race but I, as I hear from uh, diplomats and officials here, we are effectively in a subsidies race. We are talking about this idea of matching. One diplomat that I talked to today said uh, that they thought this was a really dangerous road, that it showed a lack of confidence on what the EU thought it was permissible, and that it doesn't really send a very strong signal to the world. Mm. And... Tell me, Javier, are there any other ways that these these proposals could be challenged in terms of um, state aid rules for member states, you know, that competition um, piece between individual member states? Is, is, there, is, is this going to be subject to a lot of challenges by them? Yes, especially from the smaller countries, because they are concerned that we're just uh, going to one cra- from one crisis to another, that every time that there's a relaxation of the state aid rules, the countries that benefit the more the most are this uh, you know wealthy uh, e- economies they they are worried that uh, you know Europe is constantly trying to catch up and you know it just shows that also this reliance that Europe has of mm. course uh, again another source that I was speaking to today was saying you know this really shows that Europe, despite the fact that it talks the big talk, is not really fully autonomous with just EU money. I, the, the biggest challenge here is not what we do to the law or, or what people think or not should be done. It's just the lack of funds to mm. perhaps reach the ambitions, the ambitions that officials have. Yeah, and particularly when you come to the energy sector, a huge amount of investment is required, not least towards that transition um, endeavour. Um, you alluded to this earlier, uh, Javier. There's there's obviously a huge political will to drive green energy, not just in the US, but obviously in Europe. Many companies, though, who you talk to complain vehemently about how hard it is to get those projects up and running. Um, the investment is one side of it, but obviously the regulatory frameworks that either don't exist or are too hard to get through in Ireland have a huge cause for concern about us in terms of meeting our targets. Is that matched across the EU or are we an outlier? No, I think it's very fair to say that Ireland and Irish businesses uh, resonate the fact that, you know, on the one hand, we have this big rhetoric, this big ambition, this huge political statement uh, from uh, Brussels, 
uh, uh, you know, saying we need to uh, be uh, have this new act, net zero, clean tech, etc. Yet, at, at the same time, we keep coming back to the fact that there are not enough resources to do it. And mm. not only that, but if you look at other uh, countries, namely China, for example, they are already way ahead in some of these technologies, like batteries. Uh, I was uh, at a briefing here uh, this week with the CEO of Renault, the uh, French uh, car maker, and he was very concerned, uh, not only from the U.S. subsidies, but from the fact that, you know, we don't have enough money here despite the big political statements and that other countries are already light years ahead of uh, industries like, uh, you know, not just uh, in in Ireland, but elsewhere. So yes, to your point, this really resonates across the European Union. Yeah, and that's an interesting point, just taking it out beyond the European Union. I had a discussion this week with somebody about electric vehicles, the notion that a lot of the batteries and minerals that are required to make the new ones like exist in China and nowhere else. And that's causing a huge uh, delay in getting the amount of vehicles that people need to, to, again, to meet these targets. So there's a wider geopolitical issue here, isn't there, about the development and onboarding of, of lower emissions um, energy sources. And this wider geopolitical conversation also dates back to the early days of the pandemic crisis where we realized as a continent that we are heavily dependent on other jurisdictions when it comes to securing some key raw materials like, you know, you talk about electric vehicles and uh, China securing battery metals on a global stage, but we also have, uh, you know, the concern about chips and 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 how difficult it became to secure them. Some uh, chief executives that I speak to say that they are less worried about it in the immediate term, but that it doesn't take too much, as we saw during the recent crises, that to uh, unbalance this. Uh, this dynamic and to show again that we're so heavily reliant on on third countries. Uh, the EU has come up with its own sort of ideas and acts to uh, see how we can start, you know, manufacturing more things, more materials, relying on things uh, more locally that are locally sourced. But my sense is that we're still uh, a long way away from uh, being totally independent and, and self-reliant. Mm. And finally, Javier, um, if I may, we're approaching the uh, anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and that has led us down to a new understanding of how vulnerable the entire European continent is when it comes to energy security, um, particularly the stranglehold that uh, Vladimir Putin has over the gas supply all across Europe. You've been covering um, Europe now throughout the pandemic and into this. It strikes me that when it came to the pandemic and even the energy crisis, they're not particularly well prepared for big you know, upsets to the norm. They can make regulations well, they can find consensus, they can deliver those streams into member states. But when it comes to being prepared on a and a you know on a on a huge scale, to me they haven't exactly covered themselves in glory. Over the past year, do you think that they've 
done enough to kind of redeem themselves in terms of the energy supply piece? I personally wouldn't claim to be an expert to answer such a big question. But what I can say is that your concern or, you know, what what you think you're worried maybe about the EU not being prepared enough is something that even just today I was uh, having coffee with a, a well-plugged EU official who was voicing uh, this concern, not, not to bring the B word to this conversation, but those who uh, campaigned for Brexit did it partly on this argument that the EU really is, you know, just this big bureaucratic machine that when it comes to actually getting ready and being prepared for crisis, uh, it doesn't really do a good job. And uh, I think it is a valid point to at least raise the question that despite knowing about this crisis, we are not where we need to be. Some commentators have said that, you know, we narrowly escaped a a winter that we thought was going to be worse than, than, than predicted in terms of the scale of the cost of energy prices, which is, of course, of concern to your listeners. And some even think that uh, next winter, the, win- the one coming is going to be even worse or, or crunch time. So, yes, some, some food for thought there in terms of how uh, the European Commission, which is it's closer to its, the end of its current mandate than not, uh, will, what, what is it that they will do? to uh, cope with this and future crisis. Well, Javier, as always, thank you very much for your insights today. I've accidentally become a Brexiteer, which I can assure you I did not mean to (laughs) to do. (laughs) But for now, that was Javier Espinosa, the EU correspondent for the Financial Times. Javier, thank you for your time today. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof. And then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy your bank holiday weekend.